I just love seeing you all come in like this. He's talking about the new refiners joining the Severed Patreon page. Just $5 a month and no cranial drill required. Go to patreon.com slash severed pod. Okay, you're all set. Severed, the ultimate severance podcast. Welcome back, Refiners. You've once again found yourself listening to Severed, the ultimate severance podcast. I'm your host, Alan S. Severed is a deep dive rewatch filled with spoilers. Everything is fair game from the first season of Severance. If you remember last time, we were in the middle of the file marked Good News About Hell. It's time to open that file again, Refiners, and pick up where we left off. You remember Mark had a meeting in Cobell's office. He was told he would be replacing Petey as the new department chief. We don't know what happened to Petey, just that he's no longer with the company. Mark's first assignment as chief is to do the intake interview for a new severed employee. We cut out of Cobell's office to a close-up of a hand about to get a drink from a water cooler. The shot widens out to reveal it's Irv. He's ruminating. Our last refiner, who was a woman, was Carol. Dylan's old seat. Hmm. Mark and Irv are in a dimly lit room with what look to be green padded blocks on the walls. It looks like soundproofing. Mark is at a table behind a microphone going over the binder he was given by Milchick. Irv is consoling Mark about Petey, but Mark says he's fine. Irv mentions Petey was the only one who got Mark's offbeat sense of humor. Mark's reviewing his instructions. So I'm supposed to start with just the input survey? Isn't that a little weird? We cut to a reverse angle to find Mark's talking to Milchek, who's kneeling down behind the console. He seems to be hooking up a TV monitor. Milchek tells Mark to start at 1A and go line by line based on her answers. Mark just wants to talk to her. Well, she deserves to have the information presented to her in the proper order. Just as you had. There is a process for everything at Lumen, even down to the order of the first words spoken to a newly severed worker. Irv drains his water. He throws his paper cup into a green plastic trash can. We get a close-up. On the side of the can is the globe with latitude and longitude lines like what we saw on the computer screen. Across the globe in a jaunty script are the words... Lumen recycles with an exclamation point. The graphic has the same retro feel as the computer's. Mark's reading from the binder. We get a close-up of the page. There's a blue post-it note stuck in the corner with handwritten notes on it. We can see at the top, this is the input survey. The first question is, sure enough, who are you? We're told standard trainee response is unknown. The page asks if the standard response was given. If so, the interviewer is instructed where to turn. If not, they're also told where to turn to handle an alternate response. This book looks a lot like the scripts given to telemarketers in the 80s and 90s. These types of branching instruction books were also given to early tech support operators. The trainee becomes agitated and demands to leave. Skip to page 19. Irv, who's been through this before, reminds Mark she has to ask three times in order for him to let her leave. Mark underlines this reminder in the binder. Milchik finally gets the TV monitor connected. We can see a similar shot of the conference table to what we saw in the cold open. This one is at more of an angle than the straight-down overhead of the open. Heli is laying on the table, still unconscious. Images good. She looks nice. Milchik tells Mark he's all sad. He pauses before leaving the room. I just love seeing you all come in like this. Go on ahead when you're ready. Milchik shuts the door. Behind him, Irv and Mark turn back to the monitor. Mark keys the mic and asks... Who are you? Which ties us back to the start of the cold open. After asking his second time, Irv seems to remember something. Mark, you skipped the preamble. Mark is flustered as he turns in the book to the preamble. The header to the input survey preamble says right there, before you begin the input survey, you must start with the preamble below. A note says not starting with the preamble could lead to unnecessary agitation of the trainee. Mark tries to go back, but he's already started without the preamble. He did tell Milchik starting with the input survey seemed a little weird. The monitor cuts to a shot that must be a camera in the monitor's speaker. It's the same shot we got in the cold open. 
Mark's trying to recover from his preamble blunder as we see Helly stalking the conference room. When she grabs the door handle and rattles it, this time we're on the other side of the door. Irving looks distressed as the handle is shaking right by his head. Open the door! She's not supposed to do that. This isn't going well. We cut to a door opening. It's Milchek entering Cobell's office. Are you seeing this? The camera pans right to reveal Cobell's face. She's watching the action in the conference room on a monitor in her office. Milchik asks if he should help. You should not. We cut back to the conference room at the point where Mark opens the door and says it's a perfect score. Helly's still sitting on the floor. Mark enters the conference room matter-of-factly. He's trying to explain about missing the preamble as Helly voices her worst fear, and it's a doozy. Am I livestock? I'm sorry? Like... Did you grow me as food and that's why I have no memories? This seems absurd to Mark. Do you think we grew a full human, gave you consciousness? I don't know. Did your nails? I don't know. I don't know you. This kind of makes you wonder what other programs might be happening at Lumen. A human livestock program sounds horrible, but it's not that far-fetched. In recent years, the idea of creating headless clones grown specifically to be used for organ harvesting has been floated. Although it sounds like a great thing for those in need of organs, the moral and ethical questions are overwhelming. It's doubtful a headless clone would have its nails done. Mark assures her she's not livestock. She wants to know her name. Your name is Helly. Helly R. Mark gestures for Helly to have a seat at the conference table. She slowly takes a chair. Mark continues reading from the script. In a very lame attempt to break the ice, the script contains... A dad joke. Thank you for taking the welcome survey. I can sense that the questions made you feel afraid or disoriented. Well, the good news is you're at an orientation. Crickets. Complete silence. Helly is not appreciating the gentle humor. Mark explains she now works on the severed floor of Lumen Industries. The what floor? Mark's still trying to work the book, flipping through pages. He starts into a discussion of the work-life balance. Helly suddenly grabs the tiny monitor speaker, rips it off the cord, and throws it hard at Mark's head. She connects just above his left eye and lunges for the door. Ow! Fuck! That locks from out there! Let me out! God. Mark asks if they can just take a beat. He closes the notebook and asks Helly to have a seat again. Mark decides to tell her his own severance story. A few years back, I woke up on this table in this room and uh, a disembodied voice asked me 19 times who I was and when I realized I couldn't answer I told that voice that I would find him and kill him <laughs> I don't know why I said that I, mean, I was scared too did you kill the voice? no Oh, that voice's name was Petey, and he became my best friend. He's trying to sell the whole severance concept. He says there's a life to be had here. This doesn't sit well with Helly. She grabs the notebook, and they fight over it for a few seconds. Let me the fuck out of here! Mark gives up. He decides to let Helly know she does have an out. He prompts her. Ask me again. What? You've asked twice to be let go. Ask... One more time. The time she said, let me out, before Mark entered the room must not have counted. It must be three times face-to-face -face with the interviewer. Helly understands she's being prompted. Mark. Yeah. I would like to leave the building now. Mark goes into the preset script on page 19, telling Helly he wouldn't want to keep her somewhere. She's not happy. So let's get you out of here. Mark knocks on the door for Irv. We cut to the hallway. Mark's leading Helly through the maze of underground lumen passages. They walk by other work areas with different desk configurations, all empty. Mark explains. The departments are pretty spaced out, but it'll all fill in one day. They're planning an expansion. And I'm, what, part of that? No, you're a replacement. Replacement for who? Why are you saying that like you hate it? 
The seeming underuse of much of the severed floor is a mystery. Are they expanding, as Mark says, or was the severed program once larger and it's being reduced? It does seem like James Egan's intent is to increase the severed workforce, but you got to ask, why? Mark and Helly hit a turn in the hallway. Mark stops before they turn the corner. He tells Helly he can't watch her leave, but she can go on through the door at the end of the hall. It looks like a fire door with a trouble bar across the middle. A green sign over the door says, Severed Threshold Restricted, with the same SVRD abbreviation for severed. Helly pauses at the door and looks through the window. We get a shot looking back at her. Another cut, and we can see she's looking out at a set of open tread fire stairs. Nothing special, an industrial-looking landing and wide stairs with a railing. We see her point of view as she pushes the trouble bar. As she pushes on through the door, she's somehow now returning to the severed floor. Hmm. What we're getting is the perception of her severed self. When she's out in that landing, she's Helly's Audi. As soon as she comes through the door and crosses the threshold, she reverts to the innie. We're only seeing the viewpoint of the innie. We don't have any cues as to what she saw outside the door. Her innie is puzzled as she realizes she's back on the severed floor. She tries again with the same result. Each time she goes through, she returns seemingly instantaneously and not knowing what happened. She walks back to where Mark is waiting. Am I dead? No. This isn't like hell or something? No. So many references to the title. Here we have Helly asking about hell. Mark tells her, no, it's not hell. She wants to know why. If this isn't hell, can't she leave? Mark assures her she did leave just now. She went into the stairwell, but she came back. This information doesn't register with Helly. She can't imagine coming back. She assures Mark. I did not. You did. Mark turns and heads back the way they came. Helly stands there frustrated, but finally decides to follow. A voiceover from Cobell transitions us into her office. Weaponizing office equipment on your first day. You are going to be fun. We see Mark getting a Lumen brand band-aid on his forehead. It's being applied by Milchik, who is also wearing Lumen brand latex gloves. Mark and Milchik are in Cobell's outer office area. In the office, Cabell is throwing Mark under the bus as she talks to Helly. I've wanted to pummel Mark myself, but I am his employer, and he is your department chief. So we'll both have to be strong. She tells Helly there's only one more part of the orientation left, and there's no way Mark can screw it up. Cobell explains, it's a video. She reaches in her desk and produces a mini-disc marked Helly R. This is surprising because this video appears to be digital media. Everything we've seen so far on the severed floor is analog except for the very rudimentary computers. Helly slowly retrieves the desk from Cobell's desk and leaves the office. She passes Mark and his blue forehead band-aid in the outer office. Mark knows he's next in line for a dressing down. Have a seat. Cobell is good with the silent treatment. She waits until she forces the other guy to talk. She looks silently at Mark. Are you mad at me? Cobell softly asks. Are they incompetence or the disobedience? Mark starts to defend himself when Cobell lashes out. Yes! Mark stiffens like he's been slapped. Cobell comes around her desk. She tells the story behind the title of the episode. You know my mother was an atheist. She used to say that there was good news and bad news about hell. The good news is... Hell is just the product of a morbid human imagination. The bad news is, whatever humans can imagine, they can usually create. She's saying if man can conceive of hell, it means he can also create hell. This subtlety is lost on any mark. I don't know what that means. Cobell doesn't explain. Instead, she says Mark's department could be good or bad. It all depends on the people. We cut to a close-up of Milchik's hand, dropping the mini-disc into a player. We're back in the macrodata refining office. Mark enters looking a bit sheepish with his big blue band-aid. Milchik has set the video up in the corner of the room. He pulls a chair over for Helly. Irv and Dylan are already at their workstations. Mark has a seat at his. 
Milchik hits play on the mini disc. The TV monitor is standard def, and we can hear a buzz as video comes up on the screen. The Lumen logo fills the top two-thirds. Below that, in caps, we see Heli R and a welcome button. The video opens on an empty chair. An off-camera voice says, go ahead and have a seat. We see Heli in her blue dress looking just as she does now, sitting down in front of the camera. She looks the same at first, but a closer inspection reveals a poised, at-ease, confident woman. The severed Heli sits forward with a look of concern on her face. As an actress, this is an amazing turn for Britt Lauer. She's playing against herself with the two very different personas of Heli actively contrasting each other. The Heli on the video monitor begins to speak. My name is Heli R. I'm making this video roughly two hours before it will be shown to me. Unsevered Heli on the screen is reading from cards. She says she's doing this of her own free will and outlines what being severed means. I acknowledge that henceforth my access to my memories will be spatially dictated. Yep, they explained it to us in a Lexington letter, then Mark explained it again during the interview. Now we're getting it one more time from Unsevered Heli. The producers were very worried about everyone getting this concept. As she reads the statement, we can see the distress in Severed Heli's eyes. There are cuts to the guys over at the workstation cluster. They're trying to concentrate on their work, but they keep glancing over to Heli. Unsevered Heli finishes by saying she makes these statements freely. Severed Heli is devastated. You can see she feels betrayed by herself. Milchik shuts off the video. Okay. Go ahead. Heli slowly crosses to the open seat, formerly occupied by Petey. She's still considering the ramifications of being severed. In a day, she asks Mark. So I'll never leave here. She means her severed self. There is no way for the person who exists on the severed floor to ever exist on the outside. But Mark sees it differently. You'll leave at five. Well, actually, they stagger our exit. So 5.15. He tells her it won't feel like it, at least not to this version of herself, but she does leave. Heli feels trapped. I have no choice. Again, Mark is looking at things from the standpoint of the whole person, not just the severed part. Well, every time you find yourself here, it's because you chose to come back. Not coming back to the severed floor effectively ends the existence of the innie. No one dies. The physical person is still living outside of the severed floor. But in the Lexington letter, the writer Peg Kincaid laments the loss of her other self. She says since she's never going to return to the severed floor, she's effectively killing Peggy Kay. If Audi Peg Kincaid makes the decision to never return to the severed floor, any Peggy Kay ceases to exist. It might be the best thing for the any, but it raises both ethical and philosophical questions. As Heli sits, Dylan shoots her a look. It doesn't feel sympathetic. It feels more like a look of just deal with it. These other innies are maybe not happy, but at least seemingly content. Dylan has, quote, made a life for himself here, as Mark says. He's motivated by the incentives and the sense of accomplishment. He chooses not to dwell on the negative aspects of the severed life. Heli sits at her computer and boots it up. Irv peers through the cubicle walls at Heli. Hello. We cut to the elevator lobby. It's the end of the day. We see Mark enter the elevator. As the door is closed, we can see he's leaving at 525, part of the staggered departure times he mentioned. The process of severance reverses. The any mark stops perceiving, the outy mark takes over reality and starts making outside chronological memories, picking up where he left off that morning with no memory of what took place the past eight hours. Mark trudges past the security guard who's still reading his magazine. Mark enters the locker room to retrieve his stuff. When he takes off the ID lanyard, Adam Scott gives us this great subtle moment. Audi Mark realizes it's a different ID card than the one he picked up this morning. It looks the same, but it must feel different enough. It causes him to pause and do a very subtle double take. 
He shrugs and swaps it with his Audi ID badge. Some physical change in the world of the innie becomes a surprise to the Audi. Mark heads back through the lobby and out to his car. There are a few folks in the lobby. Again, there's no one we can see in the parking lot. When Mark reaches his car, he finds an envelope tucked under the windshield wiper. It looks like it would hold a greeting card. We see the text of the note as Mark reads it under his breath. It's an explanation for the band-aid on his forehead, and it's a complete lie. He's told whilst carrying boxes he slipped, sustaining a minor blow to his temple. Mark feels around to find the band-aid on his forehead. To make up for the inconvenience of the injury, the note says, a VIP gift card is enclosed to Pip's Bar and Grill. He is then congratulated on the gift card. Mark reaches into the envelope and pulls out the Pips VIP card. This is not a gift card for money or food. It says it is one-time access to the VIP section of Pips Bar and Grill. Severance is incredibly self-referential, and the details are insane. The name Pip is referring to someone we haven't even learned about yet, Philip Pip Egan served as the CEO of Lumen from 1987 through 1999. It seems like Mark might live in a company town, which would make Pips the perfect restaurant. Check the overhead shot as Mark backs his car out of the spot. At the top of the screen is one side of a red car. At the bottom screen is the side of a blue car. A white line of snow separates the two. The red-blue color scheme is really just getting started. Mark's distracted as he's pulling his ID lanyard off of his neck. He suddenly slams on the brakes. A woman is crossing in front of his car. The reverse angle shows us it's Heli, looking startled. She's holding a bouquet of white flowers and wearing a winter coat with a scarf. Mark waves. Sorry. Maybe keep your eyes on the icy road. There is no sign of recognition from either of them. Mark continues out of the lot as Heli gets into her car. Severed workers don't seem to carpool. A long aerial shot reveals the water tower out in front of the building. A Lumen logo has been added, but this is actually the unique three-legged water tower designed for the Bell Lab site. It's referred to as the Transistor. It was designed as an homage to one of Bell's most revolutionary inventions. We cut to Mark headed home. We see his car crossing a suspension bridge. This is, in reality, the Kingston Port Ewan Suspension Bridge, located in Ulster County, New York. It's also called the Wurtz Street Bridge. This structure was completed in 1921. If you look at the railings, you can see a lot of corrosion. The bridge is in such poor condition it was closed to traffic starting in September of 2020. In October of 2021, the Ulster County government announced a major plan to invest in the rehabilitation of this historic structure. Mark turns into a subdivision full of blue townhouses. The sign on the main road identifies this as Baird Creek. It's spelled B-A-I-R-D. Like Pips, this is another reference to one of the Lumen CEOs. Baird Egan lived from 1902 until 1976. He was at the helm of Lumen from 1959 until 1976. And yes, it has been noted, most of the Lumen CEOs seem to hold the position until their death. We'll get more into the reigns of these various Egans once we visit the Wing of Perpetuity. The townhouses are, in reality, the Village Gate townhouses located in Nyack, New York. They're about 27 miles away from New York City. The Village Gate townhouses were constructed between 1986 and 1993. They sit high on a hill with views of the Hudson River. In 2021, a three-bedroom, two-bath, 1,600-square-foot townhouse at Village Gate was going for about $500,000. As Mark relaxes with a beer, check out the fish tank. Mark has two solitary fish, one red, the other blue. The tank is otherwise completely empty. There aren't any rocks or decorations. The two halves of the tank are visually separated by a black bar, and there are separate spotlights on each side. 
Mark is sitting low on his sofa. Visually, this pose reminds me of the Memorex poster from the 1980s with the guy slunk down low in a chair listening to a Memorex tape on his stereo system. Is it live or is it Lumen? Time passes. We get some great visual storytelling. It must be the weekend because Mark is home during daylight hours. We watch Mark go about his daily life. He puts the trash out, a blue can, but his neighbor's green recycling can is in the way. We hear a call to the neighbor. No, I know, Mrs. Selvig. It's just, it was in my space again. Yeah, well, trash comes tomorrow night. Tonight's recycling. As Mark is padding around his townhouse, we see him in a red sweater over blue pants. Mark is drinking, watching TV, just killing time. We hear a knock at his door on what is probably Saturday evening. A very pregnant woman with short hair and a muffler around her neck is standing on Mark's stoop. Did you forget? Yeah, he definitely did. Long pause, then... Oh, yeah, shit. That's okay. Mark goes to put on pants. We cut to a car exterior. The woman from the stoop is driving. Mark is in the passenger seat looking confused. If there's no dinner, how is it dinner? The woman tells Mark he owes her this, whatever this is. Their conversation is relaxed and a bit irreverent. You can tell they have a close personal relationship. This is Devin, and no surprise, this is Mark's sister. She drops little hints like recalling when we were kids. Devin is being played by Jen Tullock. Jen Tullock is a Kentucky-born writer, producer, and director who's also racked up 31 acting credits and counting on her IMDb profile. Jen started on stage in both Chicago and New York. She was in several movie and video shorts between 2011 and 2015. Things really kicked in for her TV and movie career in 2015 when she appeared in the TV miniseries Lofty Dreams. Jen began to nab a lot of guest star roles on shows like Roadies, Curb Your Enthusiasm, and Bestseller. She also had several multi-episode recurring roles on shows like The Coop and Disengaged. If you check Jen's IMDb profile, you see Severance is three credits back for Jen. She's staying busy. She's also appearing as a regular in the 2022 reboot of the Perry Mason TV series, and she's in the movie Spirited. Back in the car, Devin is full of veiled exposition. She mentions we're nearing the anniversary, but not of what. Devin notices the Band-Aid on Mark's forehead. He says it's from work, but they apologize. Oh, they apologize, thank God. Did they have an attack and explanation onto that apology? Mark tells her it's fine. He got a gift card. Devin has a good laugh when she finds out it's for Pips. We can tell Devin is not a fan of Lumen on the whole, and she's very much against whatever messing around they're doing in her brother's head. We cut to an exterior of the car. The camera does a follow pan as they drive by to reveal a gorgeous house on a wooded hill. There are windows everywhere and all the lights are on. In the world of Severance, this is the home of Rickon and Devon. We'll meet Rickon in a few minutes. This house in the real world is quite a house. It's known as the Beer House, B-I-E-R. It's located in the Usonia Historic District in the town of Mount Pleasant, New York. The Usonia District is an amazing planned community of 47 homes started in 1946. The entire district is on the National Register of Historic Places. This grand neighborhood was the vision of architect Frank Lloyd Wright. Wright determined where each of the homes in the district would sit so they would complement each other. Wright personally designed three of the homes. The other 44 were designed by protégés, contemporaries, and apprentices of Wright's. Wright approved the architectural plans for every home in the district, making sure each design worked as a part of the whole. The beer house was designed by Japanese-American architect Kanichi Domoto, who was born in Oakland, California. Kan, as he was known, had a 50-year career in architecture and landscape design. Kan created the beer house in the organic style developed by Frank Lloyd Wright. Beer house was built in 1949. We cut to a view through a door window. A round-faced man with a beard and shoulder-length hair is opening the door and laughing. It feels like forced joviality. This guy is odd. This is Rick. Rickon, come on. It's Rickon. Okay, Rickon. 
Rickon Reeks of Geek. Ugh, you, sir, look at peace. Rickon is being played by Michael Chernus. Born in 1977, Michael grew up in Rocky River, Ohio. Like Jen Tullock, Michael is also a veteran and accomplished stage actor. Chernus' film and television career began in 2005. He had several movie and video short appearances. His first recurring role in a TV series came in 2009 on Mercy. Michael has 68 total acting credits and counting on his IMDb profile. Michael has been a series regular on several TV series over the years, including Tommy, Orange is the New Black, Easy, and Patriot, to name just a few. We cut to a down-angle shot looking at a dinner table. Six people are seated around it. We already know Mark, Devin, and Rickon. Additionally, we see an African-American man with a shaved head, a middle-aged blonde woman, and an intense-looking gray-haired woman with heavy framed glasses. The gray-haired woman looks and acts a little like a bird. Checking in with IMDb about our party guests, the African-American man who opens the scene has the character name of Patton. He is being played by Donald Weber Jr. Donald is a stage actor through and through. He has nine total acting credits on his IMDb profile, and a couple of them are on TV, but Donald doesn't seem to really care as long as he's treading the boards. The pushy middle-aged blonde woman is Denise, and that's D-A-N-I-S-E. She's being played by stage actress Annie McNamara. Annie has 10 IMDb profile credits along with numerous stage roles. Annie has even been nominated for a Tony. The bird-like woman with the gray hair is Rebek. She's being played by writer, producer, director, and actress Grace Rex. Grace has more than 50 IMDb profile credits. Since 2008, she's done a lot of shorts and had a few guest star and recurring character roles on a few TV series. Each person around the table is sitting at a spot with a red placemat in front of them. There's a clear glass of water sitting on each placemat. An empty silver dish is the centerpiece. The stylishly dressed African-American man, who appears to be in his early 30s, is speaking excitedly as we cut to the group. We're coming in on the middle of a conversation. Something just got a laugh. <laughs> you know, what a lot of people overlook, I think, is that life is not Food. The gathering seems to be the writer's skewering of pretentious and smug intellectuals. Rickon is the ringleader, but he's assembled a group of folks who seem to feel their intellectual superiority is obvious. In reality, these are some of the weirdest and dumbest people you're ever likely to meet. The foodless dinner party is an exercise in awareness. The idea of a no-meal meal is to embrace the social aspect of the dinner party without the dinner. The message is we put too much emphasis on food when we should be minimizing the importance of food to a gathering like this. We should be finding the real value in a dinner party, the conversation and camaraderie. Some hunger relief charities will use a gathering like this as a fundraiser. These guys seem to just be getting together without food in order to, I don't know, experience each other. The man who was speaking at Fade Up is interested when he's told Mark is a former history professor. He makes this hilariously clueless statement. I was just reading this think piece about the comparative levels of violence and warfare throughout history. Oh, oh nerd alert. <laughs> War porn, I know. <laughs> but anyway, in it, he said that the people actually called it the Great War. Hmm. Apparently, it would have been a faux pas to have called it World War I. Oh, all right. <laughs> there are murmurs of agreement at this astute and unique observation. Mark Wearily explains the obvious. Well, uh, yeah, I'm, you know, no one would have called it World War I because World War II hadn't happened yet. This information is met with just as much wonder as the original comment. Of course. Yes. That's absolutely Duh. <laughs> That's so true. Devin doesn't seem to be as clueless as Rickon and the rest of the group, but she does chime in here. This is why we bring this guy. Rickon's guests are meeting Mark for the first time. Rickon describes Mark like he's a museum exhibit. Mark's late wife Gemma was an educator as well, Russian literature. Oh, I love literature. Right? 
But um, Mark is a Lumen man now. This sets off a fresh round of comments from the group. Everyone seems to know a little something about various parts of Lumen. Mark is asked if he helps design the medicine. I thought Lumen was more on the tech side of things. They began in the 1800s. Really? Topical cells, hmm. right? What don't they make? <laughs> the blonde woman seated to Mark's left has an aggressive approach to conversation. She is very challenging with her comments. Mark says he's in the corporate archives division, so no working on medicines. This Audi cover name for where he works is generic and nonspecific. CIA operatives doing covert work are often assigned to generically named divisions like corporate archives. Mark's Audi self wouldn't even recognize the words macro data refinement. Rickon then deposits the proverbial turd in the punch bowl. Mark's work is sensitive enough as to require the severance procedure. There's a long pause as the room falls silent. We get a reaction shot from each of the guests. The bird-like woman with the heavy-framed glasses and the aggressive blonde woman both break the silence together. That's something, isn't it? Mark's features are set, and he seems to be staring off into the distance. This is not a topic he wanted to broach, especially with these goofballs. Devin picks up on his discomfort. Yeah, it's also, I think, something that's his choice to tell people or not, right? Rickon is mortified when his faux pas is pointed out. There are certain things in life we'd probably rather not have broadcast at a dinner party full of strangers. Our sexual orientation, criminal record, political leanings, annual salary. Our brother-in-law shouldn't be discussing any of these things with strangers. We'll share them when and if we want and with who we want. Now it seems whether or not we're severed should also go on the list. The mention of Mark's work choice steers the aggressive blonde woman into the heart of the severance ethics issue. I just always be thinking about, you know, the other one. Mark explains there really is no other one. It's just him. The blonde woman keeps badgering Mark. I just don't grasp the visceral element. What does it feel like? Mark hesitates. He's not sure how to respond or whether he wants to have this discussion with this person. The guy with the clueless World War I observation jumps in because, well, obviously he knows everything. He's never been severed, doesn't live as an innie or outie, but he feels like he can jump in and answer this question with some authority. Well, it's simple. One's memories are bifurcated, so when you're not at work, you have no recollection of what it is you do there. Did I get that right, Mark? Oh, and nice of him to confirm it with the guy in the room who's actually been severed. And just in case you're still having trouble, yep, the producers give us the premise one more time. Mark would rather be anywhere else. He haltingly starts to answer, but is pelted with a round of observations posed as questions. You walk in at 9 a.m., and then suddenly it's 5, and you're leaving. Well, they they stagger us a little. So then, conversely, when you're at work, you can't access outside memories. Mark is withdrawing from the discussion. You can see his eyes go dead. He decides to let the know-it-all keep talking. So, in effect, that version of you is... Trapped there. Well, uh, I mean, not trapped. Ooh, you can see this rubs marked the wrong way. He aggressively jumps on the pause. But what? No, no, I'm curious what were you going to say, but not trapped, but, but what? The tension is palpable. The group falls silent. After a moment, the blonde woman mutters as an aside. So I suppose we know where you fall in the congressional goings-on. It sounds like the severance procedure has become so pervasive in society, its ramifications are being considered by federal lawmakers. This also raises the question, just how many severed workers are out there? Is Lumen the only company using severance? Are there thousands of severed workers all around the United States? There is a theory about Rickon's friends, the pseudo-intellectuals. Some fans think they may be former severed patients, possibly even failed attempts at severance. They're so weird, I think this is an attempt to explain their general level of cluelessness and things like confusion about the name of World War I. I'm not really buying this theory. I take this group and these scenes as a pointed swipe at the self-proclaimed intellectual elite. These people are navel-gazing goofballs who've lived in the warm embrace of academia for so long, they don't have a clue about the real world or their own lack of awareness. Rickon can't help himself. 
He is so dumb, but he can't stop talking. He has verbal diarrhea of the worst kind. Rickon proceeds to bury the hatchet even further in Mark's back as he supports him. The point is that Mark made a decision, and that decision was controversial, ethically, socially, morally, scientifically. But Mark, I stand behind you without reservation. The intense gray-haired bird lady who just met Mark can't agree fast enough. I definitely stand behind Mark. Devin is looking at Mark with a silent expression of apology. Mark thanks the bird lady for her support, but the uneasiness remains. Rickon tries to move the proceedings along by announcing dinner. He delivers some platitudes about how this foodless gathering has already provided them nourishment or something equally sappy and high-minded. The inane conversation blathers on as they dig into their glasses of water. We cut to a cut. It's a close-up of a sandwich being cut on a board. We're in Devin and Rickon's kitchen. We hear Devin begging Mark for forgiveness about the horribly cringy dinner party. He's giving her a brotherly hard time as she serves him the sandwich. Because your child is innocent of tonight's atrocities, I'll wait until after it's born to murder you. Oh my gosh. We cut to a wide shot of the kitchen. Mark is in a red sweater, Devin in a blue sweater. The wide shot shows the two colors separated down the middle of the screen by a column of stone. Mark produces a hip flask from his pocket and takes a long pull on it. He's taken this drinking thing portable, and he's drinking on a very empty stomach. As Devin serves Mark his sandwich, we get the feeling some exposition is coming. Devin asks if Mark is still seeing a therapist. He isn't. He says the work thing is helping. Well, we know from Rickon, Mark's wife is dead. This would explain the earlier crying jag in the parking lot. Mark's decided to deal with his grief through severance, but Devin doesn't buy it. Forgetting about her for eight hours a day isn't the same thing as healing. Mark sits silently, not answering. He may really be getting some relief from being severed, but he can't tell that to Devin. It must be a bit of a drive back to the townhouse. You want to crash here since you're already here? Mark says no, and Devin asks why not. The sibling banter between them is great. Why? Your house smells like pregnancy. <laughs> Hmm. Yeah, I'm just not grasping the visceral element of it. <laughs> uh, she is fun, wasn't she? Oh. You're definitely staying here tonight. No, I'm not. The next scene is absurd. This is the race car bedroom scene. We cut to a bedroom and beer house where Mark is sitting in a good-looking number six race car bed. This whole scene keeps the stupidity of the pseudo-intellectual privileged elite theme going. I don't know how Michael Chernus was able to deliver these lines with a straight face. I'm making all the bed sheets myself, so I won't finish with the big one for some time. But the twin is comfortable. He then delivers the most absurdly hilarious line of the whole episode. And the pajamas were made on a Baltic handloom, so you'll sleep well. Take that, 2,000 thread-count Egyptian cotton sheets. You weren't woven on a Baltic handloom. This is also where we get the beds theory. This is another skewering of every crackpot child-raising theory out there. This one's inspired insanity. One of Rickon's co-workers said the child would be wounded because they feel restricted in their bed. If a child only sees the crib in their bedroom, the traumatic realization they might outgrow the crib can damage them emotionally. If the child can see they have a bed to go to when they outgrow the one they're in, it puts them at ease. If they can see all of the beds they will eventually sleep in, they can progress from bed to bed across the room as they are ready with no psychic wounding. So, Rickon has placed the crib there on the right next to the race car bed, which is in the middle, and then finally the full-size mattress the child will eventually sleep on. It's all to keep from wounding the child. Dan Erickson told a hilarious story tied to this scene. He said shortly after the show premiered, a woman stopped to tell him how much she loved the show. She also said she was excited about solving the puzzles. She especially couldn't wait to see how the three beds figured into everything. 
Dan said he hated to break it to her, but the three beds are just three beds. It's a joke about Rickon as a parent and nothing more. We won't be discovering Kier Egan slept in three different beds before eating waffles or anything like that. So Devin and Rickon leave Mark to his Formula One dreams. Good night, my lord. Good night, my lady. Before we leave the bedroom, a quick mention. Beer House has goats. Be watching the backgrounds. There's a tiny goat statue on the nightstand in the nursery. There's another goat statue in what appears to be a goat skull in the study. We don't know why, but goats are important to both Kier and Lumen. Also, right by Devin, as she pauses on her way out the door, check the print on the wall. There are other prints around the room, but this is the only one that is fully visible. The Severance Wiki identifies this as an illustration from Mexican artist David Daniel Alvarez called Rojos, which is Spanish for Reds. It is the artist's interpretation of a scene from a Hans Christian Andersen fairy tale called The Red Shoes, so it would be appropriate for a nursery, but not unusual for HCA. It's pretty dark. Those are two frogs at the bottom of the frame. They're each reclining on the dancing feet of the orphan girl in the story. Feet that, yes, she lost. Hanging from the sparse tree are two wooden prosthetic feet. These are feet the girl had made so she could go to church. The reference isn't clear. It might be because of the two different states of existence of the girl. Is the orphan girl supposed to be Cobell? Okay, maybe, but if that's the case, why is this print in Rickon's house? It's an interesting detail, and except for the beds, the details usually have meaning in the world of Severance. Also, production designer Jeremy Hindle is a noted mad genius with strong opinions about the worlds he creates. We're going to talk more about Mr. Hindle and his amazing hallways once we head out to the Wing of Perpetuity. Mark is having a restless night. He heads to the fridge in the middle of the night for a glass of water. Before Mark closes the refrigerator door, we get a reverse angle showing the contents. The first things you see in the door are blue, green, and red bottles all in a row. While standing at the kitchen sink, drinking his water and looking out into the backyard, Mark notices someone standing behind a tree. It's dark, but he can definitely see movement in the snow. Mark steps to the sliding door on the deck and turns on the light. A white-haired man in a blue suit and tie is clearly standing in the yard. A car goes by in the road out front in the glare from the lights. The man disappears. Mark watches some more, a bit freaked out by the sight. He goes back inside. We cut to a sunny morning shot of the exterior of the beer house. We can see snow melting from the roof. Mark is standing in the family room looking into the backyard. We kind of get the feeling he's been there all night. Devin comes in wearing pajamas and munching a bag of chips. There's a businessman in the yard last night. A businessman? Yeah. Entry level or management? It takes a minute for Devin to realize he's serious. Mark says he thought the guy knew him. Oh, did the prowler invading my home make you feel seen? So seen. <laughs> Devin says there's a bar down the hill. It's probably just a stumbler who wandered into the yard. When she gets next to him, Devin tells Mark he still smells like a distillery. I'm sorry. I just had to drown out the memory of mom and dad switching out my beds when we were kids. <laughs> You've been sitting on that one. And a great callback. This must be some of the humor Irv mentioned. Later that day, there's a brief shot of Mark cleaning out the gutters of his townhome. We get a point-of-view shot as he looks out across the river. He can easily see the hulking presence of work, the Lumen Building, right across the bridge. This is an entirely digitally created shot. The bridge is about 205 miles from Bell Labs. The townhomes in Nyack are about 70 miles to the north of Bell Labs and about 120 miles south of the bridge. Well, after all the talk about it, we finally get to visit Pips. This must be Sunday night. Mark uses his hit-in-the-head card to sit in the VIP section. He's perusing the laminated one-sheet menu of Pips Bar and Grill. Grill is spelled with an E at the end, so you know it's classy. Mark's cell phone lights up with a call from Mrs. Selvig, his neighbor. The saddest shot in the entire episode is the wide shot of Mark 
answering his phone. He's seated in a diner booth next to a tiny sign that says the VIP area. His car didn't get him any free food, just VIP seating. The VIP area looks tiny and not all that special. Someone else is seated just three or four booths away, and I don't think they have VIP access. We hear Mark's side of the conversation. The ongoing bin discussion continues. As Mark is once again going through the problem, a man sits down in the booth across from him. Mark doesn't recognize him, but we can tell this is the guy from the backyard behind the tree. The first thing he says is Irv's line. Hi, kids. What's for dinner? Well, of course, Audi Mark would not get this reference. The man has his own agenda and is having his own conversation. Mark keeps asking who he is. He keeps talking past Mark about here as opposed to there. Your voice is different here. Worse. Mark has no recognition, but we're pretty sure we know who this is. Okay, who the fuck are you? Pete. My name's Petey. I'm from work. Yeah, of course it's Petey. Petey is a massive exposition bombshell. He claims he's bypassed the severance chip. He's reversed the irreversible procedure. He tells Audi Mark about things any Mark has done. He says he's on the run from Grainer, who any Mark would know, and neither of them like him. Audi Mark isn't really sure about any of this. Petey slides a red envelope, and of course it's red, across the table to Mark. Petey tells Mark and us nothing down there is what they say. Petey then says something ominous, which is echoed in the Lexington letter. If something happens to me, the things I know need to stay known. Peggy Kincaid, who wrote the Lexington letter, died in a mysterious car accident just days after sending it. Petey probably has a good reason to be worried. He gets up from the booth. We get the feeling Petey doesn't stay put any one place for very long. As Petey gets up, Mark asks, So, we're friends? I'm your best friend. You're my very good friend. This is a level of friend specificity the Mafia would appreciate. We're not sure why Petey makes this distinction. It sounds like Mark was far more dependent on Petey's friendship than Petey was on Mark's. We're seeing this somewhat in Mark's reaction to Petey's disappearance. Any Mark gets even more distraught over the missing Petey as we move into upcoming episodes. And after the crack about friendship, Petey is gone. As Petey leaves the diner, we get an exterior shot of Pips. According to the Hudson Valley Post... This location is actually the Phoenicia Diner in Ulster County. It's a retro 1962-era building. The diner sign was replaced with a CGI-lighted Pips sign. After what was surely a delightful meal at Pips, Mark gets in his car. He sits for a minute, then pulls out the Petey letter. It's written on the inside of a birthday card to a niece. Mark's hands are shaking as he opens it. Mark, sorry about the card. I had to grab something, and I know it's not appropriate. Though I'm sure you'd be a really fucking awesome niece. Petey, the exposition bomb, continues to go off via birthday card. I used to think it would take a monster to put someone in a place like that office. Especially if the person was himself. But we're not monsters, Mark. Not real ones. As Mark is reading, a car pulls in the spot across from him. It makes him nervous enough to drive away. Petey continues to read in voiceover as we see Mark's car heading home. If you don't want to know what's going on down there, I won't force it. But if you do, there's an address on the back of this card. Go along, and you'll find the beginning of a very long answer. Mark turns the card over to reveal the address 499 Half Loop Road. Mark pulls into his driveway just as Petey is finishing. We see Mark roll his trash bin out to the street. A voice is coming from the next porch over. Mark, is that you? They don't show us who it is, but even with the accent, it's pretty obviously Patricia Arquette. Mark turns to the voice. Hi, Mrs. Selvig. She apologizes for all of the mix-up with the bins. Seriously, how hard is it to figure out two bins? Mrs. Selvig is a bit of a busybody. She asked Mark about his dinner, which she'd also quizzed him about when she called earlier. Mark says it was fine. 
Mark starts to step away, saying he's tired. Mrs. Selvig launches into a story. You know my mother was a Catholic. She used to say it takes the saints eight hours to bless a sleeping child. I hope you aren't rushing the saints. Now, didn't Mrs. Cobell tell us her mother was an atheist? Ah, but she was talking to any Mark then. We finally get the reverse angle, and it's Cobell for sure, but looking matronly and sweet in a soft crocheted hat. Okay, maybe not that sweet. She stops Mark as he's trying to go on into his house. Mark? You're good people. We hold on Mrs. Selvig standing on her porch in her crocheted hat with her haunting eyes. The scene dissolves to the credits. The last ten minutes of this episode was non-stop reveals, so I didn't want to stop the action. Now that your head is spinning, we need to take a moment to meet both Petey and Cobell slash Selvig. Petey is being played by Cuban-born actor Yule Vasquez. Yule was born in Havana in 1965. We only get Petey for four episodes this season, but he is a pivotal character. Petey is the spark that moves Mark to question his severed existence and Lumen's motives. Yule has 117 acting credits on his IMDb profile starting in 1992, but that number is increasing all the time. Four of those parts have come since his appearance on Severance. Yule has picked up several multi-episode arcs like this one over his career. One of his most memorable recurring characters was as Bob on Seinfeld. He was one half of gay life partner couple Cedric and Bob. Vasquez played the character as a threatening hood with a heavy Cuban accent. Hey, Cedric, Bob, this guy won't wear a ribbon. Who? Who doesn't want to wear the ribbon? Before getting into acting, Vasquez was lead guitarist for the band's Urgent and Diving for Pearls. The dual character of Mrs. Selvig and Ms. Cobell is being played by Patricia Arquette. Patricia is a quite accomplished member of the performing Arquette family. She was born in Chicago in 1968, but her family soon moved to a commune near Arlington, Virginia. Two of her four siblings are David and Rosanna Arquette. Patricia got her start in the movies in 1987 after running away from home to live with her older sister, Rosanna. Patricia has 68 performer credits on her IMDb profile, including both movies and TV series. This is not Patricia Arquette's first time to work with Ben Stiller as a director. She starred in the Stiller-directed Escape at Danamora in 2018. Even though she's worked with Ben before, she said his approach to this project has been very different because of the incredible level of planning necessary to pull it off. Patricia is a highly decorated veteran of the acting trenches. She's been nominated for 73 awards in her career and won 56. None of those awards carries more weight than her 2015 Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress in the groundbreaking and experimental 2014 film Boyhood. A personal note about Patricia. She's been married twice to a couple of very interesting guys. Her first husband was Nicholas Cage. They were married for six years from April of 95 until May of 2001. In 2006, she married action star and a punisher, Thomas Jane. They were married for five years from June of 2006 to July of 2011. Arquette appears in all nine of the first season Severance episodes, and her IMDb profile also lists her as appearing in all ten of the planned episodes for season two. The Selvig Cobell character is a big question mark. At first, we're wondering, is she severed? Well, we'll find out she's not. Is she a loyal spy tasked with keeping tabs on Mark? Eh, maybe. It seems to be her primary function as his neighbor. Is she a scheming terrorist trying to take Lumen down from the inside? Also, a maybe. Patricia has said in interviews getting the tone of this character was a challenge from the start. It sounds like there may be alternate takes of her scenes where she was trying out different approaches to both Cobell and Selvig. She and Dan Erickson settled on the weird and creepy vibe we see here in the final. I can't imagine her any other way. This take on it really works. And good news, Macro Data Refiners, this file is at 100%. You've earned a caricature. Before you leave, remember this. Your Audi is a caring person. Your Audi likes the smell of fresh brewed coffee. Your Audi understands algebra. 
Please try to appreciate each of these items about your Audi equally. While this first episode was long, there were a lot of new people to meet and new places to explore. Our next episode is packed with even more information. This journey is just getting underway, and there is so much to discover. When we next gather refiners, we'll be discussing the first half of Half Loop. For now, you may leave by the elevator, but make sure to stagger your exits. You've been listening to Severed, the ultimate severance podcast. Severed is written, produced, and hosted by Alan Stair. Severed is not endorsed by Red Hour Productions, Endeavor Content, or Apple TV+. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Severance, the Severance logo and all video and audio of Severance and Severance characters are registered trademarks of Red Hour, Endeavor Content, Apple TV+, or their respective copyright holders. Please make sure to leave a 5-star rating and review for Severed at Apple Podcasts.